I'm going to be reading John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep's Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one here to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. These people falsely felt that they had the talent to be the next American Idol, all right? So what we want to talk about today is false hope. John chapter 5 is a fascinating chapter in the Bible. It's a story of false hope and how we can be protected from... I mean, we don't want to be those people, right? We'd hope that we'd be enough self-actualized that we would realize, hey, look, I don't have the talent to be the American Idol. We don't want to be those people. How can we protect ourselves from having false hope. So John chapter 5 is all about false hope and how we can get protection against it. This is what it's about. So we're going to jump into a couple, uh, three points actually, about what we learned from John chapter 5 that can protect us from false hope. So we got this guy, and he's laying, and we have a little pool here, okay? His pool was much bigger, but just so we got the rubber ducks inside of this pool, if you can see it. I think you have to be in the upper deck to see it. But he's laying beside a pool for 30 For 38 years, because he felt that this pool could heal him. You know, one interesting, as a side note, for many, many years, they could not find the pool in Jerusalem. They could not find the pool by the Sheep Gate with the five columns in it, and they couldn't find it. And so there was, a lot of people said, critics said, well, the Gospel of John must be inaccurate. I mean, we see a lot of accuracies in it, but we can't find the pool, so let's throw the whole Gospel of John out, because we can't find the pool in Jerusalem. And then you know what happened. A hundred years ago, they found the pool. 
And so, ooh, sorry. So then it was, okay, well, I guess it is accurate. There was a pool by the Sheep Gate. There's a particular area in Jerusalem that maybe we'll see when we take our trip there in uh, February. But there was a pool there, right? And they found it, and it's where sick people lie down. And they'd hoped to get into the water and to heal them. So the first thing I want you to write down on the back of your bulletin is to protect yourself so that you're not that person, you know, with the false hope and you haven't wasted your life 38 years beside a pool that can heal you. Don't jump into the pool of popular, popular opinion. Don't jump into that pool. The popular opinion was is that you could be by this pool and if you're the first person in the water that you would get healed. It was a myth. It was a superstition. That was what the rumor was. That if you get, the only problem was is this guy had spent 38 years lying beside a lie. That pool was great. It just couldn't heal anybody. But everybody said it could. It was a myth. It was a superstition. And, you know, people say all kinds of, you know, do this, it's going to make you happy. Or do this, it's going to bring you satisfaction. Or do this, it's going to bring you joy. Or it's going to make you rich. Or it's going to, you know, help you with your marriage. Or whatever. There's all, take this supplement. My goodness, there's a supplement for everything that's out there. And you know when they review all these supplements that are on the market? I read this thing about in Consumer Reports about supplements. They say almost all of them don't work. There's like no evidence that they do work this popular opinion about what works in our lives how do we protect ourselves how does this poor boy 38 years been lying as a lame man beside this pool for nothing how do we protect ourselves from that there is a biblical way that we can keep ourselves from 38 years of wasting our lives there's a, a verse in first john 4 1 it says that we need to be careful because there are many false prophets out there maybe you've run into a couple of those false at some point in your life where somebody said oh do this it's going to be great and you did it and you found out it wasn't great at all you have to protect yourself and god wants to protect us from all the lies and the false rumors out there that will cause us to waste our lives 38 years so here's how we do it wisdom the book of proverbs talks so much about wisdom it says getting wisdom is the wisest thing that we can do we need to ask god for wisdom God, please give me, we need to, the, the, the Proverbs talks about getting wisdom from other people, seeking advice out, seeking wisdom from other people. And listen, we have to be very selective. Listen to this. Be very selective when you seek wisdom from other people. Are they really wise people? Like there are certain people I would go to, to get wisdom from for, for money, but I wouldn't go to them for marriage. Do you understand what I'm saying? There were certain people I would go and say, can you give me some wisdom on marriage? And I would never talk to them about money. Right. Like if somebody came to me seeking wisdom, said, can you give me some wisdom on playing golf? That would be a very foolish thing to do. Right. We maybe could have a conversation about basketball, but it would be stupid to come to me about golf. Does that make sense? You need to be very selective on who you go, but you need to seek wisdom out. Most importantly, you need to seek wisdom from God. There are so many scriptures and it'll protect us from, it'll protect us from wasting our lives and making dumb decisions. It'll protect us from lying beside a pool for 38 years, spinning our wheels. We can seek wisdom from God. This is all over the place. The book of James says, if you need wisdom, ask God, he'll give you a lot of it. Never stop asking for wisdom. For some reason, when I was like a, just a teenager, um, I, I don't know if I heard a message. I don't know what it was. I don't know if I read the scripture verses and I realized the importance of wisdom. I just began asking God like on a daily basis. God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom all the time. And I've done it my entire life. And I'll tell you, there have been times in my life that I have sensed God guiding me on decisions. And it happened to me just recently. 
It was an opportunity for me to start hoping in something that was something going to happen. And I felt inside God saying, nope, that's a false hope. And it protected me. God will give us wisdom. Now, I want to turn to something that's really important here this morning. And that is what we talked about two weeks ago. Everything in this entire series on transforming our lives begins with new wine. Everything goes back to the new wine. Everything goes back to the very first miracle that ever took place, the filling of the Holy Spirit. If we want to protect ourselves from false hope and we want to be wise, we need to seek the filling of the new wine in our lives. Look at this, John 16, 13. This is a great verse. Jesus is speaking. He says, the spirit of truth, speaking of the Holy Spirit. What will he do? He'll guide you into all the truth. He'll guide you. If we keep seeking that the Holy Spirit, the new wine would fill us, he would help us to discern what is true and what is false. How would you have liked that as you look back on your life and think about the decisions that you've made? Wouldn't you have liked to be able to see the truth? Rather than making a bad mistake, a bad decision, the Holy Spirit helps us. In Isaiah 11, it talks about the fact that Jesus Christ would be full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit. And what would the Holy Spirit bring to his life? Look what it says here. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Holy Spirit will rest upon Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. What's the Holy Spirit bringing to the, uh, bringing to the party? The Holy Spirit's bringing wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and knowledge. That's what the Holy Spirit... That is why everything in the whole idea of transformation in our lives begins with the Holy Spirit filling. And how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? We ask. Luke chapter 11. And after we've asked once, we ask again and again and again and again. It becomes primary in our lives to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill our lives and never to stop asking. That's the first thing that we see in this story. Don't jump into the pool of popular opinion. Seek the Holy Spirit and seek wisdom. Second thing is this. Don't jump into the pool of sin. Don't jump into the pool of sin. Somebody said to me recently, we need to talk more about sin at Grace. Well, hot dog, today's the day. Let's talk about sin. Get you out of that cesspool of sin. Sin is a cesspool. Okay, so let's talk about sin. It's fascinating in this story. This guy has just been healed. He's, he's been laying by a pool that can't heal him. The pool's great, except for it can't heal him for 38 years. Can you imagine wasting, really, seriously, can you imagine wasting that much of your life? Would you not be kicking yourself like crazy? I just wasted 38 years beside the pool. I thought could kill me. It can't do one thing for me. I might as well drink the water, right? It's just terrible. And so he is so excited, right? So he gets healed. And after he's healed, Jesus just kind of slips off in a crowd because this guy's all excited. I'm, I'm sure all the other people that have been lying around this pool, believing in this superstition, they're all excited for him too. And Jesus slips off in the crowd. Then the guy goes to the temple. Now, the only thing we can think is that he's going to the temple because he's there to give praise to God. His life has just been transformed. He's like, ooh, yay, God. I cannot believe it. After 38 years, you have healed me. So he's ecstatic. Can you imagine if that happened to you? You would be ecstatic too. So he's there to give thanks to God. And so Jesus finds him. We're told in the story that Jesus finds him. What does he say to him? The guy is on the top of the world, everybody. God has just answered a huge prayer. What do you think's going through his mind? Jesus looks at him and says to him, Jesus must see something. And he says, look, Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. What could be worse? I mean, how bad could it get? I've been lying on a mat for 38 years beside a pool that can't heal me. I've been living a miserable life. for 30. How bad can things get? Hey, bring it on, right? Can it get any worse than that? 
And Jesus stops sinning. And you know what fascinates me about this whole thing? Is that the guy that Jesus sees something, the guy that he would even think that he needs to sin somehow to make his life better. I mean, his life just got as good as it possibly could get. He just experienced this tremendous healing. He is on a mountaintop. And Jesus stops this. For some reason, the guy felt like he needed to add sin to all of his joy to make his life complete. Isn't that wacky? Look what it says in Hebrews 11.25. It's talking about Moses, and it's talking about sin. It says, Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than, now notice this, here's, here's the part, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Everybody's sin is a false hope. This guy was on top of the mountain. For some reason, he felt like his life was incomplete until he added some sin. He felt like he needed for his life and for his joy to be complete. He needed to mix some sin in there in order for him to find happiness. He's not the only one that felt that way. In Luke 15, there's a story. It's a famous story of the prodigal son. Now, to, to the prodigal son, to his own, his, own, his own understanding of the way his life was, he said his life was perfect. He said that. He said, I had everything. And he looked at life one day and said, you know what? My life is so perfect. There's only one thing I'm missing. I just need to get some sin in my life. And so he says he ran off in riotous living. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, to their own admission, life was beautiful. It was perfect. They were living in the garden. And they looked at the life and they looked how great their life was. And they said, we're only missing one thing to make it complete. We just need some sin. We just need some sin. Somebody said to me the other night, out on the sidewalk after the girls' night out party, they come outside, they said, Do you, can you imagine that we had that much fun without alcohol? Now, I want to be clear here that uh, it's, not the, it's not the alcohol, I think, that they were uh, talking about. Uh, you know, in our story of Jesus changing the water to wine, I read so many things on the internet about that whole John chapter 2, and people are like, oh, Jesus changed it to grape juice. It wasn't really wine. That's ridiculous, okay? It was, it was full-blown alcoholic wine, all right? Okay, but the point is, is this. I don't know about you, about the people you hung up, how, or maybe you still hang out with now, but, you know, my friends, when they talked about drinking, they weren't drinking to drink. They were drinking to get drunk. They felt like, hey, man, we can't have a good time unless we get drunk. Does anybody have any friends like that? I mean, that's... I'm going to, nobody has a friend like that? You guys need to get out more often. So, man, it's like, whoo, we can't really party down unless we're drunk. We got to get, it's the drunk part, right? Not just drinking alcohol, not just having a beer. I got to get drunk. I can't be happy. I can't be complete unless I get some sin in my life. Why, where did that come from? Why do we feel that way? And we see this all over the place in the Bible. So for some reason, we think that we can't find true joy, true happiness, true complete. I mean, things could be, you could be on the top of the world. I just got to get some sin in my life. And then I'm going to realize it's a false hope. The Holy Spirit will protect us from that false hope of sin. Jesus, just beginning his ministry, he goes in the desert and he's tempted by the devil. And what's the devil say to him? He says, Jesus, look. You got a great life. You got all these superpowers. You know, I mean, you're cool and everything. You just lack in one thing. You can get some sin in your life. Get some sin in your life. And we're told that Jesus saw that as a false hope, rejected the sin. And the next thing it says, he comes out of the desert. What's it say? He's full of the Holy Spirit. 
I can't emphasize that the foundation for transformation is the filling of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit will protect us from all these false things out there that say, oh, this popular opinion, do this and you're going to be happy. Need some sin in your life, do this. You know what sin actually leads to in the Bible? And what I've seen it lead to in not only my life, but in so many people's lives that I've talked to, that I've got to get some sin in my life? Social shame. When we jump into the pool of sin, what it actually leads to is tremendous shame. I have talked to so many people, brokenhearted, like, you know, I got nobody to blame but myself. I jumped into it myself. I thought, I did this thing, boom, and man, I just feel so shamed. I don't think I'll ever get over my past. I am so wounded by the shame of the thing that, that I have done. I'll, I'll never get past it. Let's, let's check this out. This is incredible. Jesus' first miracle, everybody. Was Jesus' first miracle to raise somebody from the dead, Lazarus? Was Jesus' first, first miracle to heal a guy that's been laying beside a pool for 38 years? Or was Jesus' first miracle to feed 5,000 people? Huh? Was, was any of those? Or that, how about the poor boy we talked about last week, right? Was, was that, you know what Jesus' first miracle was? Think about this. It was to protect a couple getting married from social shame. Jesus' greatest first miracle was the issue of social shame. That fascinates me. I wonder, is, is, can God, is he even concerned, or is God up there just saying, you know what, you brought it on yourself, you idiot. You know, just, you gotta just deal with the shame. You, you brought this on yourself. Some, many of us in this room right now have that idea about God. And thinking, you know what, he's just up there, yep, serves you right. We're completely wrong. We're completely biblically wrong. God's up there saying, I want to heal you. Matter of fact, I want you to know how much I want to heal you. I'm going to make it my first miracle. You see, if they ran out of wine in that miracle number one, one, that wedding, the, the stigma of social shame would have been on that couple their entire life. Like everybody in the community, everybody in the region would know, hey man, there's the couple that ran out of wine at their wedding. It's, it was so bad that the bride's family could have sued. What a way to begin a uh, marriage. They could have sued the groom's family and said, you know what, you ran out of wine. We're suing you. It, it's very normal. The shame was so deep. Uh, uh, some of us are here this morning. You are so shamed of your past. And you don't think you're ever going to get over the things that you have done. You don't think you'll ever get past those wounds. You know, there's no way. Just, this, this is the way. This, I have to live my life out with this huge, dark cloak of shame just hanging on me the rest of my life. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will do a miracle in you, a miracle of alleviating the shame from your life. It can happen. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. But the Holy Spirit can make it happen if you'll seek the new wine. It's a miracle. That's why we call it a miracle. God is very concerned about your social shame. And he knows it and he wants to change it for you. That's why he made it his first miracle. Don't jump into the pool of sin. Okay. Uh, last one here, everybody. Don't jump into the pool of obedience. This is going to be very wacky. I'm just warning you now. I'm going to do my best not to confuse you as I'm doing my best not to confuse myself 
because my brain is working overtime trying to figure this thing out, right? Don't jump into the pool of obedience. What I want to be clear with in the beginning when I say that, because obedience is a false hope. I just want you to know, you know, when you leave, don't say, did he tell me to disobey God's word? That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. What do I mean when I say don't jump into the pool of obedience? Listen, um, the Jews, which is said here, so the Jews came to Jesus. They were very upset with Jesus. The religious leaders, the Jewish people, right, they were the most obedient people that, that there was. They were the most obedient. And when it says that they kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath was like the cornerstone of obedience. Jesus' major altercations with the religious leaders was over the Sabbath. Why? Because if somebody honored the Sabbath, it meant that they were obedient to all the law, more than likely, if they were honoring the Sabbath, because it's like the cornerstone of, every, of obedience. So they said, we are obeying about the Sabbath, so we're obeying about everything. We're putting our hopes in, the, in our obedience because it's through our obedience that we're going to have a transformed life. We're going to do good things. I'm going to have this transformed life. So they were the most obedient of all. We think falsely. If I'm obedient to the Bible, I'm going to have a transformed life. If I'm obedient and I'm right with God, I'm going to experience absolutely all that God has for me. Obedience is a false hope. Galatians 2.16 says this. Know that a person is not justified. Let's break down the word justified. The word justified is the easy way to remember it. It means just as if I never sinned. Just as if I have never sinned. Know that a person is not justified by the works, obedience to the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. When we're justified, it means we're right with God, and that's where we get the word righteousness. When you see the word righteous in the Bible, it means somebody's right with God. Okay? We don't get there by being obedient. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works or the obedience of the law, because by the works or the obedience of the law, nobody's going to get right with God. This is what Galatians is saying. So how do I get right with God? How am I transformed? We talk a lot about repenting of our sins. We need to repent of our sins, and we need to obey the good book, what it says right here. This is what we do. Now, have you ever known somebody, everybody? Ever known somebody, they've been in church most, mostly all their life, and they're like, you know, they're pretty much obeying the good book. They're doing those things. They're praying and they're going to church and living a pretty clean life. And they're as miserable as all get out. Ever met somebody like, ever, you know, met a church person who's just like, man, I would hate to be you because you are just so miserable. But they're doing all the good stuff. The, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, man, who wants to be a Pharisee? And yet they were the most obedient people there was back then over the whole earth they were because the, they were the most knowledgeable they're most obedient it doesn't lead to transformation our obedience doesn't lead to transformation actually sometimes it makes us very miserable romans 12 2 here's where our goal and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed the goal is transformation not being conformed write this one in i can be conformed by obedience but i cannot be transformed by it i'm going to try to Tie a bow on this thing. See if it doesn't make sense. I can be conformed by obedience. I cannot be transformed by it. The Bible says people, us, all of us, by our very nature, when we're obedient to what we read and hear, the kind of the rules, the commands, that after a while, it's just human nature, Romans chapter 4, it's just human nature that we begin to think 
that God is obligated to us. This is what Romans 4 says. When we are obedient, after a period of time, I'm obedient. hey, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm going to church and I'm praying. I'm living a clean life. I'm saying no. That somehow God's obligated to us. He owes us. He owes us something because I've been good. I'm not like, you know, all those other sinners out there. Sinners are easy to figure out, right? They're easy to point out, right? He's, oh, yeah, man, they're just, woo, riotous living like the prodigal son. But it's the person who is obedient. After a while, that obedience slips into obligation. You feel like God is obligated to us, and it is actually our obedience can be a bigger obstacle towards our transformation than our sin. We have to be careful with a false hope of obedience. God, you owe me. I deserve your blessings in my marriage, my money, my kids, my health, because I've been obedient. The Jews were obedient. They were the most miserable and the least transformed of all people. Look what Titus 3 says. Is when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, not because we'd been good people. Good church people, good Bible-believing people. Not because of that, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us, and this is what we want, everybody, new birth and new life. That's transformation. Through how? Again, we come back to who? The Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Holy Spirit upon us. Now, if you have never read the story, since I've mentioned it numerous times, the prodigal son, I want to encourage you, read Luke chapter 15. It is a fascinating story. And as you read it, I want to remind you of this. Three main characters. You've got the prodigal young son who goes out and lives riotous living. Uh, it's just awesome, right? And you've got the father, right, the father figure, and you have the elder son. And we falsely think that the story is about the prodigal son, and we even call it the prodigal son. It's not about the prodigal son at all. It's about the elder brother. That's the key person in the whole thing, man. That's why the story, that's why Jesus gave the story. Because the sinning boy comes back. I mean, he knew it. Okay, I'm far from God. I'm living in a, I'm living in a pig pen. He jumped into the pig pen. Okay, well, we got it clearly. You're in the pig pen. That's not hard to figure out. What's hard to figure out is the obedient, righteous elder brother. His younger brother comes back, and he goes into the banquet. What's the banquet represent in Scripture? The banquet represents transformation. It represents joy. It represents righteousness. It represents God and all, all the good stuff with God. That's what it represents. And the elder brother comes, and the father says, please come into the banquet. And what does the elder brother say? I will not go in. And why won't he go in? Because he's too righteous to go in. He's been too obedient to go in. His righteousness, his obedience prevented him from going in. That's why you know a bunch of people who've been in church all their life that you can't stand. That's why when I talk to so many people, you had a bad experience, I've had a terrible experience church. There you go. It's the elder brother syndrome. And we're all like it. I tell you, look, I can tell you all day, get rid of that sin in your life. Okay? There's a much bigger stumbling block than sin, and it's our righteousness. It's our righteous, it's our obedience. Every faith in the world repents of its sins. Every faith, name it. There's something that we need to repent of. Only Christianity not only repents of its sins, but Christianity is the only faith in the world that repents of its righteousness. We must repent for our... Have you ever done that? I have so many people say to me, man, I just feel stuck spiritually. I just feel stuck spiritually. Have you ever thought about repenting for your obedience? 
You ever thought about repenting for your righteousness? You ever thought about repenting for all the good things that you've done? Because Isaiah 64 says, even your obedience, even your righteousness is like a filthy rag before God. You ever thought about doing that? Maybe that's the key thing. Maybe that's the false hope that is holding you back from true new wine transformation. Maybe it's our own righteousness. That is the case for me. I have to repent of my own righteousness because it holds me back. So here's in wrapping this whole thing up. The Holy Spirit wants to protect us from false hope. The false hope of popular opinion, the false hope of sin. I got to get some sin in my life to really be happy. And the false hope of obedience. John chapter 16 says that the Holy Spirit comes and convinces us of our own unrighteousness. Even in our righteousness, the Holy Spirit. So see, see how we need the Holy Spirit to do all this? Or we're going to be stuck and live miserable life. We're going to live lives that are not filled with the new wine at all. We can't get the new wine. As long as, our own, as long as we're being like the, el, the obedient elder brother standing on the outside saying, Jesus, God, I'm not going in that party. I'm not going into the banquet. You know why I'm not going in? Because I'm too good to go in. Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Now, let me conclude. I'm done. I want to tell you why I encourage you to go to the prayer wall every Sunday. You don't have to, but it's telling you why I encourage you to. I have tasked, I have challenged I have charged our prayer team that all throughout this series that they're praying constantly to be not only themselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but for every single one of us that they pray, right, that goes to the wall, be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to protect us. My heart breaks every time somebody comes to me and they talk to me about how they've been hurt, some pain in their life because of a decision that they've made or they feel stuck spiritually, or sin, or something. Everybody, the Holy Spirit wants to protect us from that. There's no magical dance to get the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, just keep seeking the Spirit. And I've asked the prayer team over here on the wall, I said, you've got to do one thing for me throughout this whole series, and just ask, ask, ask for the Holy Spirit to fill people's lives, because that will protect us from so much junk. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you, God, that you love us. Now, we make mistakes. We do things wrong. But, and you're not up there shaking your head at us. You're actually up there saying, I want to help you. I want to help you. I want to help you. And I want to thank you for your mercy. And I want to thank you for your grace and for your kindness to us. Lord, I just want to ask, you know, maybe something I've said in these three different areas, you know, today about popular opinion and sin and obedience has struck a chord with some of us. Help us, God, today to get unstuck. Whatever's keeping us stuck, help us to get unstuck and to experience the new wine of your presence, true, genuine transformation, the way you want to see it happen in our lives. Let us see it happen. Bless every single one of us here today, God. We, we need you. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.